The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the rally. Stocks hitting their best level now in more than a week. And now one top strategist says the recovery in cyclicals can last a year or longer. Does the investment committee agree with that? We'll find out. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Surat Sethi, Josh Brown, John Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. I'll take you to the wall, show you the markets. The Dow seeing its best week since June is talk of that debt ceiling deal, removing now a key risk. And Josh, to me, that's really the story. You've got three big risks as we saw it. The debt ceiling debate, inflation, earnings, which are coming right at us. And you remove the debt ceiling issue, at least in the near term. And stocks certainly seem to love that news. Yeah. So, look, look, the good news about risks is once we get past one, they'll always make a new one. So uh, look forward to whatever whatever comes after this. I think the bigger picture story is that Q3 earnings are going to be very peculiar. We have never seen a Q3 earnings for the S&P 500 negative versus Q2 in the context of an economic expansion. Now, obviously, for a variety of reasons, there, there's a lot of funky stuff going on in the data because all of this stuff is, is comps uh, and we're experiencing a once-in-a-lifetime economic reopening. So maybe we'll take that with a grain of salt, but uh, I would not expect an incredible Q3 earnings. Maybe the most charitable thing I could say is um, estimates have gone low enough or have been tamped down enough by all of these headwinds that we talk about every day so that companies can leap over them easily. So maybe that's the silver lining. Um, but it's going to be a weird quarter. And there's going to be a lot of commentary, obviously, about the difficulty in employing people, costs rising, look at energy prices, look at cotton prices are absurd. So it's a funky environment. A lot of these uh, hikes in, in prices for raw materials and labor, a lot of them will stick. Some of them won't. There's just going to be a lot of noise surrounding that part of the story, uh, coupled with the idea that, look, we're going to have less liquidity coming into the system each month than we have enjoyed for the last 15 or 16 months. And we all know that. We don't know the exact timing of the removal of that excess liquidity coming in, but we all know that that's inevitable. And we're going to have to see what is able to withstand uh, that lessening, uh, you know, that, that tightening of the spigot and what isn't. Right. So I think a smart thing that people can do right now, Judge is focus on quality. I know that's cliche and everybody thinks they're buying quality. Not everybody in reality is allocating to quality um, because if we do get uh, a little bit of a hiccup market-wide from that retreat of liquidity, I have to believe maybe the quality stuff doesn't stand up as well, but I think it bounces back the fastest. So, so, so I, I'm seeing, I'm sorry, let me just finish this. It's important. Hurry, please. I'm seeing some of the beaten up names bouncing hard today. 
I'm seeing like uh, Peloton up six and a half percent. The Arc Complex is catching a bid up two and a half percent. Like I'm seeing a lot of that happening. The IPO index almost up almost three percent. I don't know that those moves uh, are are permanent. I think just on the way down in a downtrend, sometimes you run out of sellers periodically. So like that's not the bounce that I would be attracted to. I'm much more interested in the quality stuff right now, like stuff like GM that I feel is quality and cheap. The XLF, which gapped open, everything there is working. Those are quality names. So that's the way that I'm thinking okay. currently. All right. So, so Jenny, I want to know how you're thinking about it. And look, Josh brings up some important risks that still remain, and they're, they're undeniable. What I wonder is whether the improving COVID news and that situation trumps everything else and that you get a more open economy and truly the other side of the pandemic and whether that is just more important than everything else. It seems to be where Marco Kalanovic of J.P. Morgan is going, who all but dismisses higher inflation, certainly as it relates to oil, certainly as it relates to interest rates, because he says the market can withstand two and a half percent, 10 year um, $130 oil and says this cyclical nope. recovery being driven by the COVID situation improving. I know you're shaking your head, Doc, and I'm going to get to you, too, um, mm-hmm. on the other side of Jenny. He says, and I quote, yes, we believe the recent pullback is an opportunity to buy the dip in cyclical assets, which would include all equities, emerging market and developed market, apart from high growth, high multiple growth sectors, e.g. the uh, the Nasdaq 100. So, this was an important note when it dropped yesterday. What do you think about what he says? Mm-hmm. Jenny. <laughs> so there's like there's like 95 questions in that. And I'm trying to figure out how and which one to answer well, first. Well, there's only to one. Dip, do you agree with him? One, is, there's only one. Do you agree with him or not? Yes, but you said does COVID trip all, trump all? And I guess I guess the reality is does COVID trump all? I think it already has, right? We've already moved away from worrying about COVID and cases in as with respect to economic growth. So to me, when I read this note from Kalanovic, actually I saw it more as an extension, not as a new thing, but more more as an extension of what he's been saying, I would say for the past nine months, like he's been positive on energy, you know, for a while. And all this has to do with the return of normal to supply demand, Um, energy, inflation, our daily lives, everything. But that's not new. That's what's been going on. One of the things that I thought was unique. So the bottom line is, yeah, I totally agree with him. We read this too and we're like, oh, it's as if he's promoting exactly how we invest and we're totally aligned and the note was written for us. So yeah, obviously I agree. One of the things that I thought was really interesting though, was how he talks about, you know, I would buy the dip. X high multiple tech or high high PE stocks. Right. And I thought that was a unique and important thing to think about as we, you know, as we do buy these dips. One of the things, you know, I manage a high dividend strategy. And historically, when interest rates are going up um, and there's inflation potentially ahead, that my stocks, the high yield stocks suffer or don't perform as well. And that's not what's happening now. What's happening now, I think, and this gets into Josh's point before about the art complex doing well, but I don't think that's sustainable. I think what we're seeing people warn against is be careful about the high multiple stocks going forward. Those are risky. And I think this is interesting because as we return to normal and as there's less liquidity in the system, right, and it's less free dollars, I think that fewer free dollars floating around is going to decrease risk appetite. And that's why the high multiple stocks may not have the returns and may not be able to sustain the multiples that they're but at going forward, because I think the risk appetite is diminishing I want to make as sure we go forward. I'm going to make sure I'm clear here. So I know from what you okay. said, you agree with him on his call for, for cyclicals and energy. 
But do you agree mm -hmm. with his note that the markets would be fine if oil got to 130 and the 10-year oh. got to two and a half? Because, I mean, that's the crux of the argument. If we're worried about inflation and we're worried about where rates are going, he sa essentially says, don't worry about it. The market can deal with that and be just fine. Is, do you agree with that, too? Okay, so here's my little bit of a cop-out, which is it's all about how we get there and the pace. So if we get to 2.5% and it's in a super healthy way where people expect that and we go from one5 to 1.6 to 1.7 and everyone's expecting it and it's growing because we have a healthy economy with healthy supply supply demand demand um, dynamics in, in balance, then yeah, I totally agree with him that we can handle it. We okay. can, I mean, look, we can handle and digest anything. We handled and really? digested the pandemic last year. Yeah, we can. And you I mean, know what? Over 100 years, the market keeps marching up. We handled it. So we can it. handle we anything. Handled it's just it. I mean, how... we handled it. We really handled, well, we the, handled the pandemic. S&P I mean, ended up 18% the, the on the year. The market crashed. Well, I mean, what is the Fed going to come to the is the, Fed gonna, is the Fed going to come to the rescue of $130 oil and 2.5% rates? That's why we, we handle I don't, it. It depends on how we get there. Depends on okay. how we get there and right. why. John Nigerian. And by the way, I don't think 130 is permanent. Okay. John Nigerian, you, you made your point of view clear yesterday, and I don't want to say it's mm -hmm. a given that everybody is with us who was with us yesterday is with us today. Maybe, you know, hopefully there's some new people too. Um, you disagree. Yeah, dramatically so, Judge. Um, uh, and it's not as much about the 10-year. We all know that rates are still historically low. And as we push back to 2%, which we will get to eventually, and perhaps even 2% that Marco's talking about in the not-too-distant future, um, uh, I think the market can tolerate that a lot more than it can tolerate $130 per barrel crude. And here's one of the reasons, and Jenny was spot on about this, as, as you are, Scott, and that is that um, it, the velocity matters, obviously, and also we will bring on historic amounts of production um, unless, you know, we have a pushback from the government. We will bring on historic amounts of production as we push to 100, let alone 130. But I was talking with our friend Mark Fisher this morning about this. And, you know, if we have an early winter here and natural gas prices here start moving to the upside, mm -hmm. um, it's going to be bad because there's you're not just pulling on one string, Scott. All of these are connected. Take a look at the chart for coal. I sent it over to you guys. I'm not sure if you can pull it up or not. But coal is up 350 percent this year. I talked yesterday about uh, India only having a four-day supply of coal. And, you know, you're talking about power plants that just will not run in India and China and elsewhere in the world if they can't get coal. So when you have natural gas prices moving up, right. when you have crude oil prices moving up, you're going to see everything else in the energy complex, which includes um, solar, wind, geothermal, uh, wave energy, all of that will be moving up because they can, uh, because demand for those will be increasing as well. So in particular, though, Scott, when you have $130 per gallon or per barrel, rather, oil on the table, um, you're looking at all of the things that are impacted by that, not just what I spoke of. Consumer demand, of course, um, anything made out of uh, petrochemical, uh, you know, from the chemical side, to the uh, clothing side, you know, that polar fleece that many of us wear, that's petrochemical. Um, all of these things go up dramatically in price. And I think that's, Scott, what further crimps growth 
in what will already be a challenged economy without the Fed with as much oomph pushing on it. And I think that's something that would cause, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent correction in the market like that. If we see $130 crude, that will not be well tolerated. I respect your work, Marco, but I have the opposite view of what the result will be. Okay, Uh, and hopefully we're going to hear from him, uh, I hope, one one of these days soon to discuss this in further detail. And by the way, to your point, Doc, he does discuss coal as a possible canary in in a coal mine, too. So... You know, he, he's yeah. with you on that, right? I mean, that chart is scary. Yeah, he, that is a scary chart, Scott. He's with you. He, it just, I think he thinks bigger picture, you know, once you get past COVID and the power of a move in cyclicals is going to be enough to take, take the market higher. Surat, where, where do you come down here? It, is it time to buy the dip? I mean, are we maybe past the worst, past the worst part of what was a fairly shallow correction, obviously, is it time to do a Marco and buy the uh, buy the dip? I don't know. It's early enough to buy the dip, Scott. I think you know you talked about the negatives, the three of them, and one of them is off the table. I do think we need to get through earnings season to actually understand. We all have an idea at a high level. What are the supply chain constraints? What are the costs going up? Is inflation coming? How much of this demand? So I, I, I wouldn't go you know head first in if you had cash on the sidelines. I think you should actually wait, be a little more patient because. Uh, to Josh's point, you could get some high-quality companies that get sold off for non-fundamental reasons. So uh, I would wait a little bit and, and choose, uh, you know, sparingly. So you're not doing anything then, it sounds like? No, I, I actually I, I haven't done You've much. you down um, the hatches at, gonna, at Surratt Capital? No, no. You know, new capital coming in kind of slowly legged in, but really waiting to see what earnings season is going to look like. It's also year-end. It's tax lot selling. You know, looking at a bunch of things in that sense. So not getting active now, but, you know, I think in the next four to six weeks, once we get through earnings season, it'll be interesting to, to do tax loss selling, to look at what opportunities are out there for the next couple of quarters. And look, the point of oil is extremely valid. I mean, if, if oil does go up really fast, you know, do the rest, does the rest of the world start getting more oil out? We know that doesn't come right away. So there are some headwinds there that could dislocate in the short term and, and could, could cause a, a correction. So I, probably too early at this point to go ahead at first. I find it interesting, uh, a move that you made today, Josh, as we talk about, you know, the NASDAQ erasing its loss for October, as Jim Cramer suggests, to buy the weakness in tech. I've been highlighting over the last couple of days the number of stocks within the NASDAQ 100 that are down double digits from their their highs. Um, It was 70 percent on Tuesday, which was 65 percent yesterday, which is now 53% today as the index recovers. You bought more Matterport uh, on some news that it had out today, and that stock was ripping as I saw it earlier. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, uh, to, be, to be clear, that's an average up. My, my cost is, is lower. I've been talking about the stock for a while. I, 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 I feel like this is the type of story, first of all, it's utterly divorced from everything we were just talking about. Like, the macro has really nothing to do with this at all. So, like, put all that aside. Like, this is a very company-specific uh, story for me. So, they, they came out with an announcement that they have successfully implemented their services within uh, uh, Cushman & Wakefield, which is one of the largest uh, property firms in the world, um, so that all of their properties are going to eventually have digital twins. They're going to have these dollhouses that are three-dimensional, like they're, they're like a perfect copy of the space, 
And not only is that important so that a potential tenant can see the space, mm -hmm. but it's important for the construction side, and it's the data that really has the value, the spatial data and the efficiencies that can be derived from that kind of thing for the property owners. So um, this is something that for me is, is a special situation. I, I couldn't tell you if the next two or three points for the stock are up or down. Well, I'm, I'm buying it as an investment, not a trade. And it's, I don't view it as like, oh, tech stocks got cheap. This one is actually closer to the high than the low. I just view this as something where the news that, that, that is propelling it is the kind of news I want to see. So it's confirmation that I think I'm in the right place. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you the next two points where they're going. They're up because the stock was up like 7 or 8% today. Um, and now it's up 11 um, What a move for well, MTTR. I, I hope people are careful because... I hope people are careful because it's a volatile stock. It's a, you know, it's a mid-cap or a small cap without a lot of history as a publicly traded company. So people should do their own research and decide whether or not it belongs in their portfolio. I, I personally have fallen in love with the story, um, so, so I've been accumulating it slowly uh, over time. I hear you. Um, on the tech conversation, Surat, back to you. So these are among the stocks that have pulled back you know, fairly hard. And I, I get that Facebook is its own individual story in some respects. It's down 12% in a month. And Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Microsoft are all down in the last month. You have positions, I think, in everything that I mentioned, all of the big five. As Wall Street continues to defend these things every day. I've, I've mentioned calls every single day uh, on these names. Most of them reiterated with overweight and the price target or a price target bump uh, almost, almost across the board. How do you view these now that they've pulled back? So, uh, you know, I think companies like Google are one of it's, it's our largest holding, actually. And I would add to it if I had new money or new account. I think Google's getting punished just because of what's going on on the Facebook side. And if you remember, Google got punished pretty badly when YouTube was in the news. So I do like the Google story. I think Facebook's a unique story. I, do, I still do like it. I would pick it up if I had new money over here, because that's the time you kind of buy these companies when they're the negative. Microsoft's a core holding as well. Um, so I, I, I'm keeping my positions, I think, but at the same time, we've talked about you have to have exposure on the other side in the cyclicals and the industrials and the financials. And in a core portfolio, kind of that's where that barbell works. I know, but so five, I'm not overweight tech. I, but, but five right. minutes ago, you told me that you would wait to do anything because you think the market could come down more because of, because of earnings and, and other things. But now you say for Alphabet, which is your largest position, that you would add on weakness. So which is it? Now I'm confused. Well, if I, if I had capital, if I had new money coming into an account, I would add to it. But right now, I'm not reshuffling my portfolio to add more Google when I already have the position I want in there. Okay. Uh, from tech to energy, sure. since, so since we, Jenny, you have considerable exposure in energy. Uh, Kinder Morgan, Chevron, Duke Energy, One Oak, PPL Corp., and that's the part of Marco's note that you said at the very top of the program that you agree with most of all. Energy is the best performing sector year to date. I get that it's a small percent of the S&P 500. Um, and I'm not sure how widely owned a lot of these names are. But why do you think you sh we should stay with these names? So you can say it's the best performing year to date, and that's great. But to have a real perspective, you need to look back like five and ten years. And energy has done no the energy stocks have done nothing over five and ten years, which leaves them in the position today of having great free cash flow, 
great dividend yields on many, super low PEs. They have been totally ignored for the past five years. And so even though they're up a lot today, they still have really, really low valuations. There was an interesting um, FT article this morning, and the title is Hedge Funds Cash In As Green Investors Dump Energy Stocks. And what it says is that over the past, past nine months, 10 months, a lot of hedge funds have seen the same thing that I've seen, which is like, whoa, you know, there's been a whole emotional trade on these because people want to think that we're in position right now to have all renewables and green energy supporting our life and driving us to work every day. But that's not the case. So they've sold off the fossil fuel companies, build them as evil, build them as terrible. The reality is we're super reliant on the products that they produce. And that's kind of what we're seeing in, in Kalanovic's report is him saying like, look, oil could go to 130. That's because there's huge demand. So I think there's a long runway still where we can make money. And even though they're up a lot, they're still really cheap year to date. So I think there's a lot more that we can get out of them. Actually, Scott, earlier in the year, yeah. I was saying it would be easy to make money and energy this year. And uh, I think you thought I was joking, but I, I wasn't. And I would still say it should still be pretty easy to make money and energy for some time to come. Okay. Touche. You win. Give me that. Uh, <laughs> Surat, Chevron, and EOG. Yes. Uh, so, so I agree with Jenny on this, and, and I think what you know, we we dipped our toe where market weight energy, um, because we thought it was cheap, but we also know in the last five years we got killed by having exposure in there. Uh, the 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 key in energy is having really good, solid, diversified balance sheets, because you can get the hundred and thirty dollar oil, but you also can go back to forty. And we've seen what happens then in the oil patch at that point, because there is really nobody going to be lending to you unless you're getting at ridiculous rates. And Jenny's absolutely right. I mean, investors have moved away from this sector, whether it's because of ESG, it's because endowments and foundations said we don't want exposure. So capital that is coming in there is capital that is expensive and it's hard to get. So these, you really want to be with a Chevron that's raising its dividend or a Royal Dutch or EOG. You know, those are, and even Pioneer, those are the companies we like. And, and they're going to make a lot of money in this period. But then when oil does come out of revert, they have to make sure that they can still have break-even prices. Doc, what's the most compelling energy name on your board right now? Um, gosh, it might be M-U-R, Scott Murphy. Um, but there are so many that I like. Um, and as you and I have discussed, uh, these have hit and hit and hit. Um, I credit Tom Lee with being early on some of these. Uh, but... Uh, as long as you were a buyer on any of the dips this year, uh, the XLE's gone from about 37 into the 50s, Scott, and that's, of course, a broad uh, swath of those companies. Um, you look at the production side of it, and it's even more dramatic. So, yeah, I, I think anybody, uh, Devon Energy is still one of my favorites, and perhaps uh, among the, my holdings, uh, the largest on the option side is probably Devon, DVN. Okay, uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. I want to talk about a stock that Jenny is taking profits in. Interesting move here um, after a huge gain. So we'll talk about that next. Plus, we will trade the biggest analyst calls of the day. John's got unusual activity. We're also going to discuss Jim Cramer's investing club once again because he has some very interesting thoughts about some chip names you need to know about. We're going to react to that. You can sign up, scan the code as well. There it is on your board. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. 
which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right. Welcome back. Jenny, I mentioned the stock you're taking profits in. It's up 111 percent in the last year. It's interpublic and you sold it. Right. So this is a company that I bought just a year and change ago. And when I bought it, by the way, it's a big marketing company. Right. So think of um, think of all the advertising and you can actually go old school and think of Mad Men, you know, back in the McCann days, they own McCann. But it's so much broader and bigger than that. Anyway, when I bought it last year, all at, everything was disrupted. Everything was dislocated. And I had this golden opportunity where I found a stock that was terrific, that still had really strong free cash flows. And it ha- was trading at nine times earnings with a 6% yield. Fast forward a year, it's got a less than 3% dividend yield. It's trading at 15 times earnings. It's had its move. I did valuation work on it. And there's no way that I can justify significant growth from here based on the valuation. The company's great. The company's doing great. So this is not a knock on the company. But unlike Josh, I don't fall in love with companies. In fact, I work really hard not to because I love what this has done for me, but it didn't make sense for the portfolio anymore. Again, I have really strong disciplines in place. I have to maintain a big yield in the portfolio. This yield was too low. I have to look at the valuation and think what else can come from it. And there's nothing left. So I sold it. It's hard. I think maybe as interesting as the sale is that I have not used the proceeds to buy something new. And this goes to both points that Josh and Surat made earlier. Mm -hmm. Josh, you said it's going to be a weird quarter. I totally agree. Surat, we were talking about buying the dip, but not buying everything now. And so I think maybe we should think of it rather than buy the dip, buy the dips. And I think a little bit of patience right now for the next quarter. I have things that I want to buy, but it's just not quite time yet. So I think right now patience is going to pay off. When I reinvest those proceeds, I'll let you guys know. I heard you say something that I think Josh is probably going to want to react to. Unlike Josh, I'm quoting now. Unlike Josh, I don't fall in love with companies. <laughs> I was expecting you well, to jump I out of your Je- seat on I that. Lo- I love Jenny. I love Jenny, and Jenny could do no wrong in my eyes, as I've said about other <laughs> yeah, members right. of the show. So I, my only reaction would be, <laughs> It pays to fall in love with companies if you fall in love with the right ones, like Apple, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, I, I think that kind of enduring love for a company, so long as they continue to deliver, uh, makes it easier to stay with those companies through the tough times, especially when there is volatility driven by factors outside of the company 
Um, and so I can give you a lot of great examples of how that's worked in my favor. That's one. Two, never fall in love without a prenup. Uh, I think it's really important to say at the outset, <laughs> here's why I think I'm right. And if such and such changes, I would have to revisit whether or not I'm still right or now I'm wrong and I need to make a change. So uh, love is a wonderful thing, Jenny. You, hey, should, you, should, you should try it. Did, did Jenny but, buy you that burger you know, yet? That's what I want to know most of all. Did she no. buy you the burger yet? Not, not yet, yet, but it's coming. Gonna, I'm trying we'll to convince the, him we'll, to double we'll, date. We'll do that soon. <laughs> all right. Don't weasel out of that. We'll do that, Jenny. Soon. I mean, a bet's a bet. No, no. Right? A bet it's not on me. <laughs> it was on TV. It was a bet is a bet. All right, let's talk about some calls of the day. I got Square upgraded to a buy at Jeffries. Um, they say it's a must-own stock. It's interesting. I almost feel like uh, whether it should be a Square or PayPal conversation. I don't know why. Doc, you own Ooh, Square calls. That. Josh owns PayPal. Mm-hmm. Surratt owns PayPal. I don't have anybody who owns both. And I'm wondering... How about I own Fiserv? Oh, yeah, I know, but that's not Square PayPal. Hang on one second. Hang on one second. <laughs> <laughs> Pipe Doc. down, Jenny. What? <laughs> is it an either-or? <laughs> Why is this? It doesn't have to be an either-or, but um, Square has made a much uh, more concerted push into urban areas for the unbanked, Scott. And I think that's really paid off for them. I had a chance to sit down with the co-founder of Square at the SALT conference. Uh, And Jim, if you're watching, which I know you are, uh, thank you. Uh, Great conversation with him, Scott. That's a company I truly believe in. I've said it from the beginning that this is Jack Dorsey's opus, not Twitter. Um, And I think they just continue to do wonderful things both with digital assets, you know, cryptocurrencies, as well as, you know, providing more for the unbanked than virtually anybody else. So I really like uh, Square, and that's why I'm sticking with that one. Okay, Josh, again, like, you're a PayPal guy. Is it, is, do you think it's an either-or? It's not. And, and I think where they compete head-to-head is Venmo versus Cash App. And Cash App, to John's mm-hmm. point... Has done a much better has done a much better job in pop culture. Uh, look, like Jay Z is like the de facto ambassador for Square at this point. Th- those photographs of Jack and, and uh, Sean Carter walking on beaches in the Hamptons in California those are those are strategic. Like somebody didn't get lucky and show up with a camera. So there's a lot going on beneath the surface at Square. They're very smart. And they absolutely have done a better job penetrating that audience. And there's a lot of growth potential there. Venmo, I think, is, is a little bit different. Um, but again, they do compete head-to-head. I think there's room for both. There really isn't a third competitor unless you count Zelle, which is kind of like uh, this consortium of, of traditional banks uh, with their own version. But I, I think there's room for both. I like PayPal better because I think they've done a better job on the e-commerce side. Square looks like it wants to compete with Coinbase and Robinhood mm. and be a little bit more brokeragey, mm-hmm. and I'm less bullish on that. But I, there's no reason why both of these stocks can't continue to work. I just prefer PYPL. Let me hit this Neo call, too, um, while I can, before we get, get to a news break. Um, upgraded at Goldman Sachs to buy. Price target is 56. That's a big move. Doc, you have calls on this call today, Jim Cramer said, and he was emphatic, no, I do not want people in these Chinese stocks. So is there a rebuttal to, to Jim on that? 
Well, the argument against it uh, has been, of course, that circular firing squad. In other words, this is all damage that they've inflicted on themselves. That it, That is the CCP inflicting it on these companies, Scott. As soon as they put the guns back in the holsters, that's the time to buy. And they, at least for the time being, they have. Um, we talked about it with Weiss yesterday, and he covered his shorts. You look at the moves today. Um, Billy is up better than 10%. Baba's up almost 10%, 9.5%, JD 6%, PDD 6%. I mean, these are exploding to the upside. They've been buying them for the last four sessions in big numbers, both stock and derivatives, the option side, Judge. And I, so that's why I follow it in. I'm not saying Jim's wrong. I'm saying once they put that gun away, then these companies can go back to work. And so far, they haven't shown that they want to draw that gun back out of the holster. I don't mean Scott. for like 10 minutes, but you have to be an extremely nimble, forget investor. Still in a substantial downtrend. Yeah, but I mean, right? we're not, yeah, but we're not talking about half percent or one percent moves. I mean, as soon as that pressure stopped, these stocks went zip to the upside. And so that's why they became so attractive to us. And I think why so many people in particular, probably the Robin Hood crowd and a host of others said, well, if they're not going to inflict any more damage on them, on these companies on purpose, then I'm going to be sure, long these because they're half off, 50 percent off sale. Quick, Josh, because I, I heard you say that they're still in a downtrend. So you, you, if you look at the charts, the yeah. charts to you, despite go, the gains, go look. don't look good. And be quick if you can, please. I got to well, take Bob, a break. Bob, Bob is in Bob. Even with today's gain, Baba's in a 50% drawdown from its high, which was October 20. So in the last 12 months, count up all the 10% rallies like the one we're seeing today. Not one of those had, had led to uh, increased highs. So if you're playing it, I think John is right. This is like very, very, very short-term trading until we have signs of a real bottom. Mm -hmm. And it's too early to say that this is it. Okay. Uh, let's leave that there. Let's get a news update now. The headlines with Christina Parsonevelis. Hi. Hello. So here's your CNBC News update at this hour. 18 former NBA players are facing federal charges. They stole $4 million from the league's health care plan. Federal prosecutors say the players submitted false claims for medical care they never received. Nearly all of the players charged are now in custody. On the news, how the players did it and who helped them with the scheme. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. This year's Nobel Prize for Literature has gone to a Tanzanian author, Abdul Razak Gurna. Gurna's novels have examined the impact of colonialism and the fate of refugees. He is the sixth African-born writer to win the prize. NBC News reporting that U.S. officials knew in July that thousands of Haitian refugees were getting ready to travel to the U.S. southern border. However, that information wasn't shared with key immigration officials, leaving them ill-equipped to handle the 28,000 migrants who converged on a Texas bridge last month. Scott, back to you. Appreciate that very much. Thank you. We have more trades ahead, including John's unusual activity. We're back in two. More than two-thirds of S&P 500 energy companies have made carbon neutrality commitments, compared to just one-tenth of the whole index. Three-quarters of energy CEOs have ESG metrics as part of their compensation agreements, too. Think of companies like ConocoPhillips, Schlumberger, and Marathon Petroleum, which all score highly on Bank of America's ESG meter and are outpacing the broader market so far this year. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Doc, unusual activity. What do we have today? Well, Scott, um, I'm sure a lot of your viewers are going to be shocked, but Oatly is a $9 billion company. And of course, uh, they get milk and other products from oats, uh, not from cows. And Oatly, they're buying the December 15 calls, Scott. Big numbers today. It's up over seven or 8,000 of these already with the stock in the mid-13 range. They're buying those December 15 calls. Second trade, Open, O-P-E-N, obviously a reopening trade, great name for it because of mm-hmm. that. Uh, but 7,500 of the October 20 and a half, that's 20.50 calls were bought with the stock at about $20.20. I own both of these, Scott. The short-term one, the Octobers, I'll probably be in 10 days. The other one, probably two months. And then a quick update about yep. HTA. This is a healthcare REIT, talked about it on the 29th. This one's having a very nice performance today. So, again, somebody made a great call early on this one. We followed them in, and we're taking profits today. Yeah, just a coincidence, too, right? 929, and the news just comes out. Just a coincidence. Just Elliot, like, Elliot has a stake. Just like Twitter yeah, yesterday, Scott. Twitter, they were buying those calls like crazy yesterday. Mm. Today, they come up with a sale of a division and stock pops. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, go figure. All right, Doc, thank you. Up next, chips and autos. They're in focus in CNBC's Investing Club with Jim Cramer. We'll sort and debate some of those names on the list. Plus, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, and we are spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and, of course, our own on-air anchors and reporters. Here is CNBC.com news editor Fred Ember. Take all the opportunities that come to you. If it's not something you end up doing for the rest of your life, it is something that you will learn from and take skills from for whatever your dream job is. It could also turn out that this opportunity is something that you really like and end up making a full career out of it. So just take advantage of all those opportunities as as they come along and uh, you'll be on the right track career-wise. All right, shares of Marvell Technology hitting a new record high today following the company's investor meeting yesterday. Jim Cramer on CNBC's Investing Club saying Marvell is his second favorite semi after NVIDIA. What I find so interesting here, as he owns NVIDIA, Marvell, and AMD in the charitable trust, is nobody owns this stock. Surratt doesn't own it. Jenny doesn't own it. John doesn't own it. Neither does Josh. Josh, why is that? What are, what are we missing? What did we miss? Well, I mean, you can't, you can't own everything. I, like, not, not, every, not every lack of ownership is necessarily a judgment. I just, I have my things that I focus on oh, and things that I don't. I'm judging, man. I am judging. That's, all, I mean, I, I am judging. Why not? You own NVIDIA. Okay. O- only NVIDIA. Why not? Okay, Marvel? but. All right. Well, listen, I own the Qs. I'm okay. okay. I have plenty of semi-exposure. Uh, I just... I don't look, I don't, I'm not one of these people that thinks you have to have a stock du jour. Like I tend to focus on a few different names at a time. And like I have broad ownership of, of a lot of things. But like if 
I really want to get personally invested. I'm, I'm downloading the, the, the quarterly results on, on the quarter app, for example. I'm listening to that religiously. Like, I'm, I can't do that with every stock under the sun. Nobody can actually do that. I know. I'm just giving you guys a hard time that no one owns it, a stock that's done incredibly well. As we said, I'm looking at it right now, 67. Can't kiss all the 19 girls. 19 is what the 52-week high. 65.60 is where it currently sits. Dr. J, Applied Materials, AMD, the SMH calls, no Marvell. Right, no Marvell, and I've missed out on this one, Scott. Um, a little of that was, I guess, some of the, the mental anguish that happens when they were just pounding on the NASDAQ, Scott. Um, but there were people that did profit from it, not me, but there were buyers of October 60 calls. Um, they still hold those calls. They bought like 10,000 of them um, uh, just earlier this week, and I didn't jump on that one. Uh, so. Obviously, some of these trades have worked out really well, and Jim's a smart guy. I think he's, uh, you know, onto something here, and hopefully, it goes a lot higher. Jenny, is there a reason why you don't own Marvell when you have Intel, Taiwan Semi, I know why she doesn't or, own it, or Teradyne? Why, why is that? <laughs> has, to do, has to do with the valuation, right, Josh? <laughs> or my lack of imagination? I wonder. What's the PE ratio? Um, yeah, um, it's, it's like eighty times, I think. But here's, here's an actual oh, no. serious important point. Okay, but here's a serious point. We don't need to own everything to do well. And Josh brought that up. You really don't need to. I mean, look at the Interpublic group that I just sold. That thing was up 100% in a year. You can't own, I mean, unless you own SPY, you can't own all the stocks out there. So own a few and know them well and do well with those. And I would say, like, don't have FOMO on this. And I think that's where we all are. You know, sure, we would have liked to own Marvell and done well like Jim, but we also all own other things that have done equally well. So, like, don't, you know, don't suffer from FOMO here. Right. We all own plenty that did perfectly well. There's your PE39. Uh, just wasn't showing up on my screen. Oh, I thought it was. All right. Okay. Uh, GM, let's, let's move to that because we've talked about the stock a lot lately. Uh, it also, is, as a Kramer mentioned today, as the company says it was going to, you know, it set these huge uh, revenue growth targets. I question why they put a gun mm. to their heads with those targets, says Kramer. Who can see past 2022? Big mistake? I think so. Too aggressive. Josh Brown, too aggressive from General Motors? I like it. Uh, we're in a fake it till you make it world with these EV stocks. We just watched, we just watched uh, Elon Musk overpromise everything under the sun continues to do so and become the richest man in the world. So what they've been doing with General Motors, uh, they, uh, it's not quite at that level. Um, but first of all, they are delivering. This is a company that actually knows how to churn out trucks and, and cars. Um, so they may miss one target but exceed another one. It's social media. Nobody remembers. They put the CEO out. She's wearing a leather jacket. I'm feeling the whole vibe. I love what they're doing. Um, and, and I got to tell you, investors are not penalizing technology companies uh, for, for overshooting. Like, that's just not the environment we're in. We may get back to an environment like that. What, what you're being penalized for right now in technology, and GM is trying to be a tech company, is not having a big enough imagination. So I know all the Ben Graham people are rolling their eyes at me. That's fine. Good luck in life. Uh, but that's what's going on in, in the current economy. You have to dream big, think big, make big, audacious moves. And then also you have to follow up and deliver. And that's the hard part, of okay. course. Anybody can promise anything. But I think it's working for them so far. All right. You can sign up and get Kramer delivered right into your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. You can go to cnbc.com backslash investing club or... 
You can point your phone at the screen in front of you at the QR code. It'll take you right there. Coming up, we're answering your questions next. It's Ask Halftime, and we're back in two minutes. All right, it's time for Ask Halftime, and we have a viewer question today, a video question, I should say, for everybody. Let's listen. Hi, guys. Chastity Crocker here, reaching out to you by way of San Clemente, California. Um, So really quickly, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the short-term stocks that we should be looking at investing in for the last quarter of 2021? All right, we thank you for that question. Jenny, do you want to start us off with an answer? Sure. You know how Josh said he thinks it's going to be a weird quarter? I agree. And weird usually doesn't mean super strong. So I'm looking to kind of hide out. And I've got four <laughs> high dividend stocks for you. Sabra Healthcare, New York Community Bank, Magellan Midstream, and B&G Foods. These all have five and a half or better dividend yields. They're all trading at a discount to the market. And they all have earnings growth ahead. So I think if you want to hide out, this is a nice place to go. Surat? Uh, I go with Uber. Um, if you look at kind of where we are and the Delta variant coming off, you've got European traffic coming to the U.S., people traveling more. Uber is really going to benefit from this in the last quarter. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, guys. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right. Let's do final trades. Dr. J, I'm starting with you. I, th- I think it was was it yesterday you said you're buying more Apple calls or you did. I understand you just bought more. Yep. Yep, I did, Scott. Um, Yesterday, we had unusual activity at the 140 strike in the weeklies. Then it moved up to the 142 and the 144 strike. Today, I'm buying the 144s at regular uh, expiration, which is next week, not this week. And above the market here, Scott, at that 45 strike, 145 strike, 86,000 open interest. That's a lot. I think we draw up to that level and maybe even through it in the next week. So you, you think Apple's bottom now? Well, yeah, I think at that 138-ish level, I think that was a great opportunity. Now we go higher. All right. Surat? Uh, Constellation Brands, they had earnings uh, yesterday. They were strong. They raised guidance. Uh, I want to own this going for the next couple quarters. Okay, thank you. The reform broker, Josh Brown. Uh, Staying long GM, nobody's going to remember 20, 30 targets nine years from now. Don't worry about it. (laughs) All right, Jenny? Last week, Navient announced that they wouldn't service federal student loans anymore. It was totally misunderstood. This has a de minimis impact on earnings. Stock's down 15% since then. Now you get to buy it at four times earnings with a 3.4% dividend yield. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, guys. Thanks so very much for watching as well. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.